If you have a Bible, if you'd turn to Mark chapter 10, move on in Mark. Beginning in verse 13, and we're going to read through verse 31 in Mark chapter 10. And it says, And they brought young children to him, Jesus, that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. And verily or truly I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why do you call me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Well, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Well, master, all these I have observed from my youth. And Jesus, beholding him, loved him. And that is actually agape love. And it's the only place in the book of Mark where it said Jesus loved anyone. Interesting. In light of what happens. And he said unto him, One thing you lack. Go thy way, sell whatsoever you have, and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around about and said unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said unto them, Children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. They were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, well, who can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, said, well, with men, it's impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. And then Peter began to say unto him, well, we've left everything, Lord, and followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, verily, I say unto you that no man has left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last and the last first. And Father, we gather here as your church. And we bow our hearts before you, Lord, and ask that you will speak to us, Lord. Give us a word that will help us in this week and in these end times, Lord. And you'll, you'll set your kingdom how to enter and how not to enter the kingdom. You'll set those principles before us tonight. And we thank you that you'll do that in Jesus' name. So, you know, one beautiful day in the park, this guy's pushing his strollers. He's got his screaming baby in the stroller. And he's wheeling that infant song along, and that kid's screaming out real loud, and he keeps saying, you hear him saying, easy now, Donald. Just keep calm, Donald. It's all right, Donald. It'll be okay, Donald. It's all right, Donald. And this woman passing by hears him saying that, and she goes, well, man, you certainly do know how to talk to a, an infant that's all upset. You know, you're very gentle and quiet. And she leans over the stroller, and she looks at the baby, and she said, well, what seems to be the trouble, Donald? And the father real quickly says, oh, no, he's Henry. I'm Donald. <laughs> You know, in our modern culture today, you know, we view tenderness to children as a virtue because 
You know, they use children to pull at heartstrings, don't they? I mean, the politicians, you don't ever see them slapping a baby. Instead, they're going to hold and kiss them, right? Or relief organizations, you'll see these pictures of all these kids that are, don't have a place to live, nothing to eat, and they use that, you know, to get your money a lot of times. And children in a lot of homes, they're treated like they're little adults. You know, the kids will tell the parents what to buy, where to go, where to live, how to live, and on and on and on. So the difference, though, is that's the way our society is. But to understand this, we have to look back on how the Jewish society that Jesus lived in viewed children. And they were not back then. They weren't given the status or the attention that children in our society today are because they were considered the least important members in society. Now, I like to see somebody run for president and use that as one of his platforms. (laughs) Children are the least important people in society. You need to remember that. But that's the way it was. So sons were considered to be a blessing, but only in the sense that they were going to carry on the family name. Or once they got past this convenient stage of being an infant, a two or three year old, once they got up to the age of 13, they're going to be able to help us to work. But all in all, childhood was not looked on and children were not looked on as being anything as a big deal. They weren't that significant in society back then at all. And like I said, we need to understand that. And so when we look at verse 13 here, we began with this, and it says, They brought young children to him that he should touch them, and his disciples rebuked those that brought him. So we don't really know. It doesn't tell us exactly who the they were that brought the children, but I'd say we could safely assume it was the parents. Maybe one or both of the parents are bringing the children there. But here's the thing. Because they're not named, we don't tell who they were, what status they were. you got to figure they were probably people that weren't considered to be anybody. They were probably just a bunch of nobodies that are bringing their kids there for Jesus to pray for them. Low on the social scale. And the children, we know, were probably infants. Probably at the most, they were probably three years old. And we know that for a couple reasons, because at the end of this, verse 16, it says Jesus was able to take them up in his arms. And I think he might have trouble doing that with a teenager. And in Luke's account over in Luke 18, the word he uses is for a newborn baby, an infant, he actually calls it. It says, and they brought unto him infants. So we know they're just little tiny babies at the most two or three years old that are being brought to Jesus. And another thing we need to consider is back then they had a very high infant mortality rate. So six out of ten kids that were born were dead by the time they were 16 years old. And so there was a custom back then that parents would, on the day before the Day of Atonement, they would bring their kids to the rabbis to have them blessed. And Jesus by now is a famous rabbi. So it doesn't say that this was before the Day of Atonement or whatever, but that's why they're bringing him there, to have him bless them. But what's hard to explain is the disciples' reaction to the parents bringing those kids. Because it says there in verse 13, the disciples, it says, rebuke them. And that is like a very strong word. It's a word that's showing very strong disapproval for what you're doing. It's the same word Jesus would use when he rebuked the storm in the sea. He rebuked Peter. He rebuked spirits. Strong disapproval. And they're, so they're really getting on these parents for bringing these kids here. So they apparently had forgotten, if you remember, back in just a chapter back in Mark chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus got on him. He held that little kid. He says, unless you receive a child as this little child, whosoever receives such children in my name, he says, you receive me. And he gathered one in his arms. They apparently had forgotten that just a chapter later. It hadn't been that much longer. Maybe they're thinking in their mind, well, you know, Jesus, we know he's the son of God. He's doing miracles. He's important. He just doesn't need to be bothered by these kids. 
just, you know, get them away. But the problem is his reaction to them is showing what? It's showing they're not savoring, as he told Peter, you're not savoring the things that be of God, but you're looking at things as men look at him, as men in society do. And so that's what happens here in verse 14. It says, when Jesus saw it, when he saw that they were rebuking those parents, driving them away, it says he was much displeased. And that is another strong word. It's a word for being indignant. And so it's what happens when you see or hear something that's wrong and you're watching it go on and it makes you stand up in your seat, so to speak. And you're like, wait a minute, that's not right. That's what that word's saying there. He strongly disapproves of what they're doing. He's getting angry about it. He's upset. So those disciples are telling those parents, get those children out of here. And Jesus is like, wait a minute. Uh-uh. Don't be doing that. That's not right. Don't get rid of them. Bring them here. Don't stop their parents from bringing them to me. Bring them here. Let me pray for them. You all don't understand what you're doing. You don't understand what I'm all about. And that's what's going on through this whole section in Mark that we've been looking at here lately is Jesus is constantly trying to work on his disciples to teach them that the kingdom of God, the kingdom that's coming, the kingdom that they're a part of is directly the opposite of the kingdom of men or the kingdom of darkness. You know, Peter doesn't want him to go to the cross. Oh, no, Lord, you can't do that. I'm looking for glory and fame. And Jesus says, wait a minute, I'm going to go and listen, you'd better go, Peter, if you want to make it in. If you want to make it into the kingdom, they're like arguing about member walking on the road. Who's going to be the first and the greatest? And that's when he brings that little child in his arms. He goes, "Uh, uh-uh. not the first and the greatest. That's the way the world thinks. But the kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of men. And you all need to be starting to get your thinking going along that you're going to be last of all, the servant of all, not striving to be first of all. And then remember, Hadn't been that long back either. A man's casting out spirits. And they're like, hey, stop that. You're not part of us. And he says, wait a minute. Don't stop those guys. Just like he's telling them, don't stop these parents from bringing these kids here. He said, nobody can do a miracle in my name and speak lightly of me. Don't stop them from what they're doing. And he ends this here in verse 14. Look what he says there. He says, allow the little children to come to me and forbid them not. He says, for if such is the kingdom of God. I think the main focus of what he's trying to say here in these few verses, 13, 14, 15, and 16, is that the kingdom of God is characterized by people of all ages that have characteristics of a little infant or a little baby. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But I believe he's also saying something here. I think he's also saying that little infants or babies are under God's special care and blessing until they reach the age of accountability. In other words... Little children, little tiny children really do have a special place in the kingdom. And I'm saying he called those parents back here. Wait a minute. Don't send those kids away. Bring them back here. Let me pray for them. Let me bless these children. And he blesses those children. It doesn't say whether they or their parents. And you know the children, they're not believers or unbelievers. But he's going to pray and bless them. Like I said, what's going on here? Like I said, the mortality rate was high. And if you're a parent... They're concerned about where their children, if they die, where they're going to be. And they want to get his blessing on them. They want to know that if something happens to my child and he doesn't make it, he's going to have eternal life. I want this blessing to come from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's saying there in verse 14 that the kingdom of God is made up of little children. And I believe it is literally and figuratively. 
So I believe the Bible teaches or implies that babies and little children are under God's grace and care until the age of accountability. So in other words, I believe, now it doesn't specifically say it this black and white, but I believe if a little baby dies before they reach that age, they go to heaven. So by that, I am not saying, and we know, we should know here, that children are not born with a sinful nature because we know that every man born since Adam is born into this world corrupt, don't we? We know that. Psalm 51, David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, he didn't mean in adultery. He's saying, I was created, I was sinful from my birth is what he's saying. Psalm 58.3 says, the wicked are estranged from the womb, and they go astray as soon as they are born speaking lies. And every, we got enough kids in here, everyone says, amen. All right, well, that's one thing you don't have to teach your kid is how to lie. I was talking to a brother the other day. Children are not born sinless, are they? They're not born sinless, morally pure and, in, and innocent. They're not neutral, in other words. Now, believe it or not, some famous preachers and people have taught that and believed that. Charles Finney believed that God could not create anything corrupt. He believed that every child born into this world was born pure, holy, and sinless. And he said the problem was they had three strikes against them, and that's why the Bible says all of sin, because he says everybody's going to because they got the world, the flesh, and the devil working against them. But he said potentially someone could be born. He didn't believe in original sin. It's called Pelagianism. Pelagianism. It's an error. It's a heresy, actually. It came right at the beginning of the early church. Carries right on through. I'm sure there's Pelagius today. Semi-Pelagius, Pelagius. But anyways, he's like, yeah. It's possible that someone could be born and not sin and not need the Lord Jesus Christ. It's possible. He said, well, it won't happen. They got too much going against them. But he says every child is born in holy and innocent. That's what Charles Finney taught. The Bible doesn't teach that. They're born sinful with sinful tendencies and how do we know that because they die right every child dies the wages of sin is death but what i'm not saying though is they haven't consciously chosen to sin and because of that i believe that's why god extends them grace and he'll save them if they die before they reach the age of accountability and what is that age you may be asking i don't know I'm saying I think it's different for everyone when that age is. But here's some scriptural references that kind of make that point. And I could give more than what I'm going to give. But in Deuteronomy 1.39, so when God's talking about the judgment he's going to place on the adults that wouldn't believe him to go into the promised land, he says this, Deuteronomy 1.39, he says, Moreover, your little ones which you said would be a prey, and your children, which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil, he said, they will go in thither, and unto them, he says, will I give it the land, and they shall possess it. So God didn't hold infants and young children responsible like he did their parents for refusing to go into the promised land. He said they had no understanding of good and evil. Didn't hold them responsible in the same way. Jeremiah 19.4, in that chapter, it's talking about there were child sacrifices that were made to the God of Moloch. And Jeremiah said this, he said, in Jerusalem, they have filled this place with the blood of innocence. I-N-N-O-C-E-N-T-S, innocence. So it's not saying that those children were not without a sinful nature. 
But they had no understanding of good and evil, I believe, of what God's saying. They were innocent in that sense. Okay? And probably, we could also talk about 1 Kings chapter 14. Jeroboam, he has an infant son that gets sick. His wife goes to the prophet, wants to know what's going to happen. Is this baby going to live or not? The prophet says, every male that's big enough is going to die. But he said, that baby, because I found some good in it, that baby... Israel's going to mourn for it because I've found something good. Well, what had it done? It had, that baby hadn't done anything. But I think in the sense there's the implication there that because that baby hadn't rebelled against God like the rest of the family. And he says, hey, he didn't say the baby wouldn't die, but he says, I want all of Israel to mourn for that baby, that infant. But here's the one more commonly used verse that points, I believe, that babies that die are going to go to heaven, and that's 2 Samuel 12. So we all know the story. David commits adultery with Bathsheba, murders her husband Uriah. A child is born as a result of their little illicit relationship. Nathan the prophet comes to David about a year later. So about a year later, how old that baby would have just been a few months old at that point, wouldn't he? And Nathan tells David after he repents and confesses his sin, he says this, he says, The Lord has put away thy sin, you shall not die. Howbeit, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, he said, the child also that is born unto thee, Nathan said, shall surely die. And it says then that the Lord struck that child with sickness, said it was very sick is the way the Bible says. And it said then David, though, it said he besought the Lord. For the child, he fasted, went in, and it says he laid on the earth all night. His men went in there, tried to get him up. Uh-uh, he said, I'm not getting up. It says he laid on the earth and fasted before the Lord for seven days. And after seven days, that child died. And the men are like, man, who wants to go tell him? He's, he was so upset that that child was sick and he's fasting. Wouldn't let us talk to him. Just leave me alone. Now, what's he going to be like once he finds out that baby's dead? And he figures out, he overhears them talking, he realizes what they're talking about. He asks them, is the baby dead? And they say, yeah, that baby's dead. And it says he got up off the ground, he washed himself, he changed his clothes, and he said, bring me some bread, I'm going to start eating. And the people are like, what are you doing? When that child's sick, you wouldn't eat, you wouldn't talk to us, but now that he's dead, it's like you're celebrating, you're eating. And what was David's answer? Here's his answer, listen to this. He says, while the child was yet alive, he said, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? He says this, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Well, I mean, how's that? I mean, there was a child born in iniquity, if you want to talk about Psalm 51, shaping iniquity. So there's been people, we've had people in here that have lost their children in infancy. My wife and I have lost a baby, still had a stillborn baby, and I'm telling you, it's a bitter pill to swallow. It really was one of the bitterest ones I ever had to swallow. But I believe there's God's given us comfort in this word that those children, I believe they are in heaven. And I believe those verses point to that. Most people have heard of John Calvin. i got a couple other theologians that are big-name theologians. Maybe you haven't heard of them. But here's what they had to say about this verse here in Mark 13, 14, 15, and 16, but especially verse 14, Suffering the little children to come unto me. 
and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God, or allow them to come unto me. And John Calvin says this of that verse. He says, those little children have not yet any understanding to desire his blessing. In other words, they didn't ask their parents to bring them to Jesus. They, they don't know anything about it. They don't know anything about it. It says, but when they are presented to him, he, Jesus, gently and kindly receives them and dedicates them to the Father by a solemn act of blessing. And it would be cruel, Calvin said, to exclude that age from the grace of redemption. So he's not saying they're saved just because they're infants, but he's saying while they're infants, they're under this special care and blessing of God. And he's saying if they die, Calvin's saying he believes they'll receive salvation through God's sovereign grace. Charles Hodge, great theologian in my opinion, said this. He says, he tells of such is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus. He tells of such is the kingdom of heaven as though heaven was in great measure composed of the souls of redeemed infants. Saying that's what he gets out of that verse 14. B.B. Warfield, another conservative theologian, he says, if all that are in infancy are saved, it can only be through the abrupt operation of the Holy Spirit who rules when and where and how he pleases, through whose ineffable grace the Father gathers these little ones to the home he has prepared for them. Ineffable means indescribable, beyond words. His grace is beyond words that you can express. And what he's saying is, if all infants that die are saved, it's only because the Holy Spirit at the moment of death chooses to sovereignly intervene and have his grace extended to them and change them and take them on into heaven. That's what he says. It's a picture of the gospel of grace. They can't do a thing to earn heaven, can they? A little baby can't do a thing. And I've heard it said, and I think it's true, that many, if not most, I mean, it talks about there's an innumerable multitude in heaven that the book of Revelation speaks of. I've heard it said, and I don't doubt that it's true, that there are infants that have died. And we've had millions of them. We've had millions of them aborted in this country, living beings that didn't stand a chance. The blood of innocence, as it's said. But you think about that, like a man said, if you think about it that way, we worry all about these countries that have atheists, Buddhists, Muslims. What about their children? I'm saying if that's true, if what the Bible seems to imply is true, that means countless of those babies are in heaven right now in these countries. Jesus said, allow the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of of God. That's verse 14, and then we move into verse 15, and I believe there he's directly addressing his disciples, and thus he's directly addressing us with what he says in verse 15. So he moves from speaking of literal children, so to speak, to spiritual children in verse 15. Truly, he says, verily, I say unto you, there's 14 of these verily sayings, and that means he's saying something that is really important, because a lot of people just want to skip over these verses like, whatever. I'm saying this is very important. Look at what he says. He says, truly, I say unto you, whosoever, that's anyone, any disciple that shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. So back in chapter 9, he talked about you need to receive a child as you're receiving him. Here he's talking about receiving the kingdom as a child would receive the kingdom. Like I said, so in our culture, 
when we think of kids, when we think of little, little darling little two and three year olds, right? We think of them as just being cute and sweet and innocent. Oh, they're so open and fresh. I mean, that's kind of the way we think about it. But is that really what he's saying here? That we have to become cute and cuddly to receive the kingdom of God? Is that what he's trying to say, do you think? I think what he's really trying to, he's pointing out that a child in that culture that they grew in, not like our culture, would have been small, would have been weak, would have been helpless at the bottom of the social ladder because like, you know, they wouldn't have voted, they wouldn't have driven, they wouldn't have made decisions. They were the lowest members of society, those little tiny babies, weak and helpless. And that's why Jesus receives them with open arms and blesses them because why? That's the heart of God. God has always had a heart all through the word for the weak, the needy, and the helpless. And that's why all through the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament law, he made multitude of provisions for the poor, the widows, and the orphans. And James says, you want to know whether you're a true Christian or not? You want to know whether God's really come and changed your heart and made a difference in your life? James 1.27 says, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. The poor and the helpless, he's saying. That's what Jesus is saying here, isn't he? Don't turn those kids away, the poor and the helpless. And he went on to say, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So as we've been saying, probably be about my 30th time, the children, especially infants, are entirely needy and helpless. So they have to be fed, don't they, when they're hungry? They can't feed themselves. And when they throw up on themselves, are they going to go change their clothes and clean themselves up? They just have that thing where they're just dependent on you for those things, aren't they? They can't feed themselves. They mess up on themselves. They're dependent on you to clean them up and get new clothes on them. And when they feel alone, look, they can't get on the phone and call their other little infant friends and say, we're going to have a fellowship. So they need you to come and pick them up and hold them and to be with them. I'm saying that's that picture. Don't you get that picture? That's what he's saying. We've got to become like that. That's the point he's trying to make, not cute and, you know, somebody want to da-da-da-da-da with your lips. I'm saying, no, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about poor and helpless. So he said, that's a picture of who will receive the kingdom, small and weak, not the ones that are looking for a social standing. They're, you know, they're proud of their accomplishments, even religious accomplishments, how smart they are, how spiritual, how much Bible they know. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't look at yourself. Like you got anything to be proud of? Because Jesus is saying, what What do we see when we see these kids? What does he say in the opening words of the Sermon on the Mount? The poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Opposite of pride. So like a child, the poor in spirit, they don't feel like they deserve the kingdom. They don't feel they have a right to the kingdom. They don't feel like they've done anything to earn the kingdom. So True disciples, in light of their sinfulness and what they know about themselves, and in light of the glory and holiness of God, they feel, and this should never go away for us. It should be there from the beginning of salvation right on through, but that we feel small and powerless in that sense, entirely dependent on God at all times. Isn't that the way he's made us? That's, that's what he's saying here. So we don't earn the kingdom. How do we get the kingdom? What does he say? Look in verse 15. He says, Verily, truly, I say unto you, Whosoever shall not what? He says you have to receive the kingdom. So it's a gift. The wages of sin is death. So sin pays wages. Sin lets you 
earn something, but he says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the kingdom of God is something that's received. Poor and helpless we are like a gift. It's nothing you can earn. And American pride and our independence, we have trouble a lot of times just receiving a gift, don't we? We feel like we have to do something to earn our salvation. And that, moving on into what we're talking about here through verses 17 through 31, that was the problem with the rich young ruler. That was his thing. So here's this guy. I don't really question his sincerity. I think he was sincere. Some people will say he was a hypocrite. Well, it says Jesus loved him, and Jesus had no love for hypocrites whatsoever. He genuinely loved him. I think the guy was sincere. Comes running up to Jesus, and he's kneeling down to him, and he is eager to do something, to earn something. What must I do, he says, that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus asked him, he says, well, what have you been doing so far? How have you been doing on the commandments? What about adultery? What about murder? You killed anybody? Have you stolen? Have you lied? Have you honored your parents? And the guy's answer, I've been doing good. I've done all those things since I was a wee little boy. He's like Paul, he's saying. You know, Paul could say, he honestly could say, and the rabbis taught this back then, that it was possible and expected that according to the law, because there was provision made for sin, that someone could be blameless. And that's what Paul said. Hey, according to the law, I was utterly blameless. No one could accuse me of not being able to keep the law. And that's what this guy, that's the same way this guy's saying. He's saying, look, I can point to what I've done and I should be commended, is what he's saying. And look at how God has blessed me as a result. I'm a rich young ruler. Blessing upon blessing. He would have liked that song. They'd have sung that back then. And you know what Jesus told him when he said all that? In light of what we said about those little children, he says, well, you lack one thing. Look what he says there in verse 21 after the guy says, Master, all these I have observed from my youth in verse 20. And Jesus says, beholding him, he loved him. But he said unto him, one thing you lack. And what was it that the guy lacked? You know what he lacked? The heart of a child. The heart of a child. That's what he lacked. And Jesus said, here's what you need to do. He says, you got to sell all you have and give to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, pick up your cross and follow me. And so what's Jesus telling him? What's he saying to this guy? He says, look, you're trusting in your righteousness, your riches, your standing, your achievements. From what we just heard, it's a contrast, isn't it? He's like, no child. That's how you have to receive the kingdom ahead. No child would think like that, would they? Because a child has no righteousness. A child has no riches and a child has no status. That's why you read things in context and they make more sense. So he's tying the two of them together there. That's what's happening here with this story. So he says, you know, I want you to get rid of all of that stuff. And I want you, rich young ruler, I want you to take the position of a little child and just come and follow me. And what would that take, though, for that guy to do that, to give everything he has away and come follow the Lord Jesus Christ? That would take great faith and a heart to obey, wouldn't it? And guess what? The guy couldn't do it. That's what it says in verse 22. And he was sad at that saying and went away grieved. Why does it say that? Because it says he had great possessions. So in his case, it was possessions that had him. 
He had a heart for God, a heart for his law. I'm sure he loved the law and all that, but he was still an idolater. His money and his possessions was his God, and all of us have something that we put before the Lord. It may be money. It could be a lot of different things. To be able to give that up, no man can do it. It's not in us. No man can choose to follow the Lord Jesus Christ on his terms. I'm saying Jesus' terms. Nobody can do that. And you know why? Because unsaved people, unsaved man is filled with pride. And there's only one way that can be gotten rid of, and that's the Holy Spirit. He only can humble a man's pride, open his eyes to his lost state, and draw him to the Lord. That's what had to happen to all of us. And it continually has to happen. Psalm 10.4 says this, The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. And so the gospel, the true gospel, when it's preached, it will humble our pride. Receiving the kingdom the way Jesus said, like a little child, will humble our pride. Have to be like that. Have to be like little infants willing to receive everything from our Heavenly Father to follow, trust, and obey Him just like a little kid. So what's God asking all of us? What He's asking this rich young ruler? That we need to give up the rulership of our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the rich young ruler couldn't do it. He couldn't go from a rich young ruler to a poor young follower. Couldn't do it. So look what Jesus says here in verses 23 and 24. It says, Jesus looked round about and said unto his disciples, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? In verse 24, and the disciples, they're astonished at that. Man, Lord, that's a sign of blessing. And you're saying they can't get in the kingdom. And he answered again and said unto them, well, let me make it a little clearer. Children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. And let me ask you a question. Do children trust in riches? He's saying we have to receive the kingdom like a little child. Do children trust in riches or do children trust in their parents? Now, when I was a kid, I mean, I'm saying until I got to a certain age, I had no idea what my parents made. I didn't care what my parents made. All I knew was I saw enough to where my dad was a responsible man that took care of all of our needs. And I never worried about a single thing. Not because I was trusting in any riches. I didn't care about all that. That never even entered my mind until you get older, you don't, you know. At a certain age, kids, then they start worrying about their money, how much they have, and they don't want to spend it, da 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 I've got kids. But to a certain point, isn't that what he's saying? Telling that guy, you need to quit worrying about your money and putting your trust in that. So you need to learn and have your total trust in me. And that's what God's asking us to do, put our trust in him for everything. So he goes on to say, verses 24 to 26, and he answered and said unto them after their astonished at his words, children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, he says this, he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they're even more astonished at that saying among themselves, well then, who can be saved? It's like, what in the world? We got Abraham, Isaac, we got all these people, David and Solomon, and you're telling me those guys couldn't make it in by, by what you're saying? It says they're astonished at his words. They don't understand it. And listen, when he's telling them that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, you hear all these things and you'll see them in commentaries where they're talking about the eye, this big gate, and that. Uh uh. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying it's impossible because a camel in that part of the world was the biggest animal there was, and a needle was a needle. And it's literally impossible for that camel 
the huge camel to go through the eye of the needle. That's what he's saying. He goes on to say that. He's telling them it isn't going to happen. And they're like, well, then who can be saved? And like I said before, from a human standpoint, we need to see this. Somehow people think that, oh, this guy's just got a heart. And if I could just, you know, I could just say this or that, they just seem to have a good heart. They seem to be a nice person. The Bible doesn't teach that about anybody. So from a human standpoint, Jesus is clearly saying here, no man can be saved. It's impossible. No man has a heart for the Lord. People intellectually, I think, won't disagree with that. But then when you hear things people say when they go out and they're talking to people about the Lord, they say other things than what the Bible says. And they somehow think if I could just be more convincing or they're just a nice person, if they just had a few more chances, the Bible doesn't say that anywhere. It says in Romans 3, as it is written, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. Not a single one, God says. There is nobody that understands. And he says there is none that seeks after God. Nobody seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that does good. No, not one. And he's talking about the unregenerate. There is not a single unregenerate person that wakes up one day and thinks, man, I'm miserable with my life. I think I'm going to go try to find Jesus. That's not what the Bible teaches. So it's only because God with his spirit. So if a person comes and they have an interest and they have a, and this happens and God starts dealing with the person. But a person, if they're showing genuine interest in the Bible or whatever, it's because God by his Holy Spirit is doing a work in them. Pure and simple. And that's why prayer is so important if you have a friend or someone you're working with or a loved one that's unsaved. It's not going to be your arguments, your persuasion or whatever. And no, they don't have a good heart. So God has to start dealing with this person through his spirit and convict a man. Open a man's eyes to see his state and then begin to draw him to him. It's the only way it happens. Or we could take credit for it, couldn't we? And we're going to take credit for absolutely nothing. And John 6, says, no man can come to me except the father which has sent me draw him. No man can come to me except the father which has sent me draw him. And so that implies that if God doesn't put his hand, his laser on a person's life and begin to draw them, guess what will never happen? They'll never come. They won't care. And that's what the doctrine of election is all about. He doesn't do that to everybody. And so if he's done that to you and he's done that to me, then praise God for its pure grace and sovereign grace and mercy, isn't it? Amen. Nothing we earn, nothing we deserve, nothing within us. It's purely because of God's sovereign grace. And so we have to be given new hearts. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's telling us, man, we have to have hearts of a little child. Only God can give us those hearts, hearts that are humbled, and willing to trust and obey our Heavenly Father. And that's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to him at night and he's saying, listen, he cuts him off. Cuts him off from his little speech he's going to give. And he says, listen, you must be born again. If, if you want to see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, you're a ruler. You're a person that's got status in this society. And he's telling him, you need to lay all of that aside. You're saying you're coming to me and you realize God's with me. 
And he's saying, you need to know that the Spirit blows on who He wills. And that's what needs to happen to you. And it did happen to him, I believe. But if you want to see the kingdom of God, that's the way it works. You must be born again. Must be born into being a little child again to see the kingdom of God. So it's nothing that we earn. It's a gift. It's a promise that's given us. And we receive it by the hand of faith. So getting back to Sunday's message, here's Israel. So you're believing whatever. It's all by grace and by faith that we get anything. They're standing there looking at this swollen river. And yet God's saying, I've given you this gift. And so the only way they're going to get across that river and into that land to take the gift he's given them is they have to exercise faith and stand up and go and get what he's given to them. They didn't earn a single thing. He says, you're going to come into houses and lands. You didn't build the house. The fruit's going to be there waiting for you. It's all just a gift given to you. You just got to arise and go and get it by faith. And he said, don't let an evil heart of unbelief be found in any of you. He says that in Hebrews, doesn't he? Don't let a promise be left us of entering into his rest. No, we need to labor to enter into that rest is what he's saying. And God says, I'll give it to you supernaturally. Just be like a child. Because the ones that got their head into it and they're looking at what they're seeing or looking at how big everything is in these walled cities, the ones that got their head into it didn't make it in. He's saying you got to be just like a child. Trust me. Trust me when I say you can take that city. It's going to work. I'll never fail you. Remember we said that? Trust in the Lord with all your heart, we sing. Lean not to your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge him. And he says he'll direct your path. And God says, I'll never fail you. I'll never drop you. We talked about He says, I'll always be there for you. So the rich man, the child's how you make it. The rich man's how you don't enter into the kingdom of God. He walked away sorrowful. He wasn't willing to do what Jesus said. And unlike the rich young ruler, what about the thief on the cross? What about him? You compare the two of them. He didn't have anything to offer Jesus, did he? The rich young ruler, he had his status. I'm a rich, I'm a ruler. I've done all the Ten Commandments. Guess what? The thief on the cross had none of that. He didn't have any money. Didn't have any good works. He couldn't say he obeyed that law because he's a thief. That's what he's hanging there for, right? No status. He didn't have any status. He's hanging there naked. He's a criminal. And so what did he deserve? What did he earn? He's getting it. That's what he told the other thief, didn't he? He says, we're getting what we deserve. This man here in the middle, he didn't deserve any of this. But he says, no, we're getting what we deserve. That's what he deserved. What happens? God, by his Holy Spirit, it had to be God, by his Holy Spirit and his sovereign grace, opens his eyes. Because what's the difference between the thief on the cross and the other thief? Nothing except that God, by his sovereign grace, opened that man's eyes to see his state, to see who the Lord Jesus Christ was, gave him a heart of a child. That's the Holy Spirit. That man didn't think all that up on his own. He didn't open his own eyes. And like a child, he pleads in his need for Jesus to help him, didn't he? Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Or in other words, you know what he would have been saying? Will you give eternal life to the likes of me? You ever felt that way? But God bless me with what he says, me? That's what that thief's saying, isn't he? And Jesus looks at him and he says, yeah, I will, because it's for the likes of you that I came into this world. 
It says, not many rich, not many noble, not many wise are saved, but it's the weak, the base, the foolish, and the despised. The slaves were mostly who made up the early Christian church. And he says that the ones that will receive my help by my grace like a little child, he says, yeah, I'll help you. I'll remember you. I can see God's done a work in you. And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Isn't that what he told that man? So we have to ask ourselves, how can the likes of you or me be saved? How can we make it in that kingdom? And Jesus would say this. He says, with men, it's impossible. We're never going to do it on our own, are we? We're never going to figure it out, be smart enough, spiritual enough, holy enough. None of that stuff. But not with God. Not with God. With us, it's impossible. But not with God. For with God, all things are possible. And that's a blessing, isn't it? Because if it was left up to us, I'd say, man, we are in a bad shape, aren't we? But when it's left up to God, man, there's hope there, isn't there? Put our trust and hope in Him, and He'll bring us in, won't He? Because we've been taught this well here, that God is faithful, and there has not failed one word of His promises. Y'all believe that? I really do believe that. I believe that's true. Amen. Well, we'll stop right there. Heavenly Father, I just ask you, Lord, did you won't make this just a word that we hear tonight and we forget before we're out the door, Lord. I just ask you to impress upon all of our hearts that we can come before you as little children. That's how you want us to come, and we can put our faith, our trust, our hope as obedient children in you. You'll never leave us. You'll never forsake us. You'll always be guiding us and giving us direction through your word. I just ask you'll give us those hearts, Lord, that we see ourselves as needy and needing your help and comfort and guidance through this life. And I thank you that you'll do that for us here in Jesus' name. Amen.